you will, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. We continue our journey through the book of the Revelation. For those who may be joining us for the first time, we have already walked through chapter 1, begun in chapter 2. We see that Jesus has singled out, are you listening? He singled out seven churches. Today we're on the third church. It is the church, depends on your translation, most translations say Pergamum, some say Pergamus. But regardless, it's Pergamum, and it is the compromised church. Let's read our text. Let's get it in front of us so that we can hear what God has to say to us. Would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word? Revelation chapter 2, we pick up in verse 12. And Jesus dictates to John, and this is what he says. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Does this message sound familiar? I know. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. So Pergamum is where Satan's throne is, and where Satan is set up housekeeping. He lives there. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, take your word and open it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we've read this text... It is very interesting to me that Jesus misses no words. Jesus misses no words. He immediately tells this church. He tells them the good. He tells them the bad. He tells them the ugly. And then he tells them what my mom and dad used to love to tell me is the you better. You better. And when he tells them to us the you better, he tells us what the outcome will be for doing right. <clears throat> I want you to pretend with me for a second. I, it's just 
answer a hypothetical. I wonder. I mean, Jesus chose seven churches. There were a lot more than seven churches. Everybody knows that? Give me a nod so I know you're awake. There are a lot more than seven churches, but he chose seven churches, and he wrote specific letters to those seven churches. Now, here's my question for you. Had New Hope been one of those seven churches, what would he have said? What would have been his message to us? I mean, consider how direct he's been to the Ephesian church. Now, remember, the Ephesian church, in the beginning of the the chapter we preached on two weeks ago, they are such a great church that there is a book in the Bible that was a letter to them. And yet he said, i got one thing against you. Last week, to the church at Smyrna, they were under intense persecution. And he said, guys, I know your affliction. I know what's happening. Next week, to Thyatira, he's going to say to them, you tolerate Jezebel. You tolerate teachings that are foreign to what I'm saying. I just wonder. I said in my study this week, as I was just praying through the text today, and I just wondered. What in the world would he say to us? Now, some of you are thinking, Brother Jerry's about to tell us what he thinks they're going to say. And let me just tell you what I think. Here's what I think. I don't know. But when I consider what he said to these seven churches, it makes me shudder to think. Back to Pergamum. Warren Wearsby tells us that the word Pergamum literally means marriage. And he concluded from that that the church at Pergamum had now become married, are you listening, to some of the doctrines and practices of the world that were wrong and contrary to Scripture. I mean, I mean, when you read this letter, these verses that we read, you get the feeling, now listen, you get the feeling that the church at Pergamum at one time was a really good church. It was a strong spiritual church. It, it was someone that Jesus could count on. They knew what it meant to live for Jesus. They knew what it was to spread the gospel. They knew His truth, but something had gone wrong. As I read this letter, it appears to this preacher that one of the things that had happened is that they had begun to compromise God's truth on the altar of cultural demand. And the results were, are you listening? The results are and were that they were like Ephesus. That they had abandoned their first love of Jesus for their mistress called the world. 
Perhaps they'd just gotten sucked into trying to please the culture. Jesus sees this. He calls them out on it. And then he offers them a way of salvation. He who has an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To this compromised church, I'm only going to offer you two thoughts today. The first thought, and both of them are directed at that church, the compromised church, whether it's Pergamum or whether it wears the name of a new hope or or a no hope or a good hope or it doesn't matter. Or Calvary, it doesn't matter. Two thoughts. The first thing that I see here is what I'm calling the adjudication of the church. A-D-J-U-D-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. It's not a word we use most of the time. In fact, Eric, I learned the word adjudication when I was a music director. We'd have these choir festivals. Debbie, you remember those things. Choir festivals. Get all the choirs together. We would have employed three or four guys to come and sit in the balcony with a little notepad. And they would adjudicate the choirs. They would tell us the fresh eyes, no, um, no emotional connection to the choir. They would, they would look at the choir. They would hear the choir and they'd write down. They would adjudicate all the choirs about how good they were singing and with choral standards. We, we knew what the standards were. I did a couple of those myself. That's exactly what Jesus is doing to the church back then and today. He's adjudicating us. He is looking out at us. He's seeing what we do right. He's seeing what we do wrong. And what's the standard? Do you remember the picture of Jesus with that sharp, two-edged sword that came out of his mouth? It is the truth of God. I'm going to say again in a second that Jesus is purveyor and holder and, and truth, but you need to hear this. Jesus is the standard. I am the way, the... Say it with me. Well, we can try that again. I caught you off guard. I know I'm nobody that can catch you off guard. He, Jesus says, I am the way, the... He is the truth. He is the standard. Jesus possesses all the truth of God. And when you look here, he says to this church, like he says to New Hope, like he says to you, he says, I know. I know. We've heard those words in two previous churches. We're going to hear them in another four churches. He says, I know. What does he know, folks? He knows everything. He knows everything about this church. He knew everything about that church. He knows everything about what we're trying to do. He knows about our motivations. He knows about what we do right. He knows what we do wrong. He knows it all. Whatever you can think of, whatever question you can come at, He knows. Whatever you're struggling with, He knows the answer to it. Seems to me that He's trying to get this through to us because in writing seven churches, you remember? Our number seven is perfect. In writing seven churches, the perfect number of churches, he says seven times the perfect number of telling us that that he knows. Now, what did he know? When he adjudicated the church, what did he know? First of all, he knew the condition they were in. He knew the condition they were in. Scripture said, and I can go back and read it, Scripture says that he knew where they were. 
where they lived. He also knew who else, he also knew who was there with them. He said, Satan's throne's there, where Satan's throne is, where Satan lives. He knew who they were living among. He knew, he knew what they did. He knew what they did, he knew what they didn't do. They didn't deny his name, even in the midst of some struggles. You see, he sees and knows today, wherever you are, when you leave this building today, He'll still see you. He doesn't just see you when you're in the building. You do know that, don't you? He sees you wherever you go. He sees you whatever you do. He sees you. He has his standard. It's in the book of the Bible. Any The, the books of the Bible, it tells us what we are to do and what we're not to do. Could be, for Pergamum, we could talk about the town of Pergamum and the, the parts of the culture that caused them to struggle. Could it be, come on, 21st century people, could it be that the culture was trying to get God's people to compromise? Hello? And, and the way we don't compromise is to, is to stay with you. But here's what I want to say with you. When he adjudicates us, he sees it all. He, he knows it all. He knew their condition. He knew their situation. He knew their action, just like he knows yours. He's the adjudicator. Second thing that he knew as he adjudicated this church, is he, can, he knew the commitment that they showed. His words. You are holding on to my name. You didn't deny my faith. Deny your faith even in the face of seeing one of your own members killed. Now, did you get that? Verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet, you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. Is that pretty good commitment? Is that staying committed to the end? Well, what happened to Antipas, Brother Jerry, what well, the tradition tells us, we don't know much biblical, but extra biblical and tradition tells us that Antipas was put to death by Nero, excuse me, by Domitian, by Domitian, and here's how he was put to death. He was put in a, in a brass bull. This is what we're told. It was a brass, it was an altar where they tried to uh, uh, exercise demons, cast out demons, and they put somebody in there, heated it up, and he was roasted to death. Can you imagine the pain? What would happen if one of our members, simply because of their faith in Jesus, were put to death? Would we come together? Would we fall apart? 
Will we fall toward the Lord or will we fall away from the Lord? Even in the face of that type of persecution, these folks held strong. And they recognized it as being the hand of Satan. Jesus knew what they had done. He knew their commitment. He knew their commitment. He knew their, their condition. But he also knew the corruption that they had allowed. The corruption that they had allowed. It's a sad thing. These folks who had shown great courage, they had shown great commitment in the condition which they found themselves failed, are you listening, in both their belief and their action. When we get to this church, if you, if you remember back two weeks ago, Jesus said to Ephesus, I have one thing against you. Down in verse 14, he says, i got a few things against you. And then he named two of them. Both of them can be teachings. Both of them carried names. One of them was an Old Testament name. One of them was a New Testament name. Now, it should go without saying that every... Let me back up now. I, I take things for granted, Eric. Does everybody in this room really desire God's favor? Okay, I caught you off guard again. I'm going to try it one more time. And don't say yes if you don't desire it. Does everybody in this room desire God's favor? Does everybody in this room desire God's blessing? If we desire God's blessing, we need to watch the teaching. Now, now watch, watch what happens here in this church that had gone through so much stuff. First of all, teachings of Balaam are mentioned. Teachings of Balaam. Now, we can flip back. We're not going to do it for the sake of time. We can flip back to Numbers chapter 22 through 24, and we can read the story about Balak and Balaam. But when you read verse chapters 22 to 24, there's obviously something that's not told. Now, if you don't remember, Balak employed Balaam to come and curse God's people. And Balaam said, I will come from price, but I will only say what God tells me to say. And so as you read 22, 23, 24, you kind of walk away with the fact that he stuck to it. But it's almost as if, if you stay with the story, it's almost as if you get the impression that Balaam kind of went this way. If you can't beat him, join him. Can't beat him, join him. When Balaam walked away after he had tried four times, go read them, four oracles, and he always said what God said, God told him to say, and he goes back home. Chapter 25 opens with the men of, excuse me, with the ladies of Moab and the men of the Jewish nation Engaging in sexual immorality. And that was what God told him not to do. Told him not to, not to mix. 
So how does that sexual immorality of chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, connect to Balaam? Well, if you keep reading down in Numbers 31, verse 6, it says that the Moabites, those ladies, acted on the teachings, on the counsel, the advice, the instruction of Balaam. The logical conclusion is that since Balaam couldn't curse them and receive his wages, he must have got in a private room, Tim. He must have got in a private room and said, you know, I can't do what God told me not to do. I can't do that. But I can give you some dirt. Those men are susceptible to the Moabite women. And you send those women over there, what will happen is, first of all, they'll engage in sexual immorality, and then they'll eat the meat that you sacrificed animals. Case one, case done, and they're gone. I will tell you this, is that the Bible doesn't use the kind of words that I use it, that I used for what God's people did and what Balaam, Balaam was the cause of it. Talked about the Jewish people. Let me just give you some of the words. They used having sexual relations. That's socially acceptable. Another translation used the word committed whoredom. Another translation says, and they prostituted themselves. You see, what happens is that when you give yourself to any sin, sexual sin or any other sin, that sin never stands still in your life. Are you listening to me? Sin never stands still in your life. It's always progressive. Always progressive. I love our young people. I think they know that. But you need to hear me. Even though I'm an old man, I know. When you're young, be careful with yourself. Uh, when you're not so young, be careful with yourself. You're single. You have this sexual impulse. Here's what happens. It starts off with holding hands. Moves to kissing. Then it moves to getting alone. And it moves to petting. Then it moves to places you didn't think you'd ever go. And then one day you look back and you go, I can't go back. Because it's, sin never stops. Cathedrals did a song many years ago that said this sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll make you pay more than you want to pay. That's what went on in Pergamum. The corruption they allowed was first Balak and and, and they talked about that. And the second corruption in the Scripture is the teachings of the Nicolaitans. second time Jesus in, these, in this chapter has mentioned this group because obviously they were causing great problems in the fellowship. You put all the thoughts together, the words, the works, the teaching. What they're doing is obviously contrary to Christ's teaching. 
In Ephesus, he called it practices. Here he calls it teachings. And as you read about them, you discover that if there's a lot of things going on, dualism, Gnosticism, it could have been because they felt like there were people with such knowledge and deserve to lead. It, said it, it could have been that they were telling everybody that what they were wanting to do in the church was based on a private revelation from God. So they should be allowed to do it. Now, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans. We just know that they caused problem after problem after problem. They tried to lord over people. What we do know about the Nicolaitans, are you listening? I'd hate to be in this crowd. What we do know about the Nicolaitans is that Jesus hated their works and he hated their teaching. That's not good. Jesus gave a true adjudication, judgment of this church. He found it lacking. He found it failing. And he found it compromised. Now I'm going to pause just a second. To tell you, every time I read about this church, I stand convicted in my heart. I'm convicted in my heart when I realize that this church, that these people were strong in their faith to the point of enduring the watching of one of their own members being killed. And it makes me wonder about me. Would I stand for Jesus in the face of some true persecution and martyrdom? How about you? Does your faith, does your trust, does your relationship with Jesus have that kind of power and connection? Fortunately for us, After adjudicating the church, the second thing is the answers for the church. The answer for the church. Now, Jesus, I don't want to make enemies, but I'm just going to tell you. Jesus offered a one-word answer. One word. I used to hate it when people give me one-word answers. Donnie, you know what I'm talking about. All our adults would give us one word answer. And when it was one one word answer, it was no, don't, stop, quit. With me occasionally, they'd go, are you kidding? Just... When we got a positive answer, it always came with a qualifier. Y'all going to love this, teenagers. I know it's never happened to you with mom and dad. Yes, but. You can, but. Hello? Am I the only one in that that kind of a family? But the truth is, is that Jesus gave the one word that we don't want to hear. Are you listening? Repent. Repent. Ethan and I were talking about just before the service, this thing of rededicating your life. Rededication is not in the Bible. Well, dedication is. I don't know what rededication is in the Bible. But here's what you're going to do. Two weeks ago we talked of, uh, of, um, at Ephesus. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent, which means turn around and return. There's your rededication right there. 
That's what Jesus is calling this church to do. He, re, he said, repent, and then he offers some things that were undesirable, undesirable, all the way to unimaginable. What did he say? He said, ask for the church to repent. How do you do this? How do you do this? There's some things you have to do. You have to recognize the truth. You have to recognize the truth. We can become like Pergamum and compromise. We can't have, be like Pergamum and compromise. But God has a way for us to be restored, even to today. And that way for us to be restored is in the person of Jesus. As much as you think you can do it by yourself, you can never do it on your own. You'll find yourself as guilty as those people at Pergamum. But Jesus, I've already said this, he's the bearer, he's the holder, he's the standard, he's the purveyor. He is the truth. People who have been compromised must come back to Jesus. Jesus said, you repent or else. Vance Havner wrote a book entitled, Repent or Else. The truth is, if we refuse to repent of our unfaithfulness, if we refuse to recognize the truth, if we refuse to hear it, if we just simply deflect the truth about us, Scripture says... In verse 16, I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. You really want to be on Jesus' enemy list? He's our judge. He is the truth. He is the one that offers us hope. First step is that we've got to recognize truth. Second thing, we have to receive the truth. To receive the truth. And you knew I wasn't going to preach this text, and I'm not going to preach any of them. You just need to know that until we get through with these churches, here's what He who has an ear to hear, you better listen up. Because you really don't want Him fighting against you. When we hear from the God, when we hear from our God, from our Jesus through His Holy Spirit. When we hear that truth, we need to recognize it as truth. That's what confession is, agreeing with God about what's wrong with your life. When we do that, we recognize it, and we must receive it and go, Yes, Lord, you're right. I'm afraid there's too many of us in the 21st century preferring to go, Oh, that's not me. That's Ryan. That's not me. That's Mike. It's not me. That's Jacob. It's not me, it's somebody else. You see, when He comes to bring us the truth, we hear from the Lord through the Spirit. We must hear it with our heart and accept it, receive it. And then the third thing we must do is respond to it. We have to respond positively. This was the answer for the church at Pergamon. This is the answer for the people at Pergamon. This is the answer for the church we call New Hope. This is the answer for the people that we call New Hope. To respond to His truth. If we respond to His truth and repent, here's how it lays out. 
if you still have your Bibles, this is how. If we hear and we respond, we will be made, watch this, conquerors to the one who conquers. Overcomers. And when we conquer, when we, when we become conquerors through Christ Jesus, we get a couple of rewards. Look at there. It goes and says, uh, um, I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. You know, you know what manna is. Manna was that supernatural food God provided from heaven to his people when they were in the wilderness where there were no food, and he took care of them every day. Hidden manna is the spiritual food that God offers us. And you know what form that food takes? Jesus. Jesus. Brother Jerry, you're getting eaten up with that name. I said, yes, I really am. I'm getting eaten up with the name Jesus because He's the answer. Because I believe that there are some of us, since Jesus is our food, are you listening? Since Jesus is our food, there are some of us who are malnourished spiritually. And he says, I'll give you hidden manna. And then he goes on to say, and I will also give you a white stone, and that stone will have a new name inscribed on it. White stone with a new name. What in the world does that mean, Brother Jerry? Well, listen. In the days of the of the Roman Empire, the Roman culture, a white stone was an admission ticket to an event. Hello? So he's going to give you the white stone. Now watch this. When you had that white stone with your name on it, you had an all-access pass. Brothers and sisters, when we repent and when we come to Him, He gives us this white stone, all-access pass. That means we get to go wherever He goes, do whatever He does. We must recognize the truth. We must receive the truth. We must respond to truth. It begins at salvation. There's probably somebody here who's been playing church for 105 years and you've never trusted Christ. Listen, it's not going to go well for you when the world comes to an end, only when you come to Him through repentance, recognizing the truth that you're a sinner and He's a Savior, receiving the truth that He can save you, He can cleanse your sins, and you respond to it and invite Him into your life to be the Lord of your life. First step. For some of us, well, I've done that, Brother Jerry. Yeah, but we've got, then we kind of dismissed him and we've gone our own way. And today he's calling us. He's saying, hear this truth, brothers and sisters. i got a couple of things against you. And I need you to respond to repent. Never forget, Jesus knows. Never forget, Jesus knows. And to close this message, I want to give you four things on the screen that Jesus knows about you. First of all, He knows your situation. He knows your situation. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how far away you've been from Him. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly of your life. He knows the top priorities, the low priorities. He knows that your internal self. He knows who you are. He knows your situation. He knows the struggles that are going on in your life. Second thing he knows is your steadfastness. What in the world is that? He knows what you're really committed to. 
Hello? He knows what you're committed to. Oh, I'm committed to Jesus. Yeah. As long as nothing else gets in my way, I'll be here and, and worship with God's people. I kind of think when Jesus returns, he's going to come on Sunday morning between 10.30 and 11.30. You see, he knows what is top priority. He knows whether you're committed to him or not. Three, he knows your sin. Now, this can be real personal. For some of us who have never trusted Christ, our sin is unbelief. We've never invited Christ into our life. And that is a ticket to a place that you don't want to go. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Jesus shed his blood so our sins could be remitted, could be cleansed, could be forgiven. We invite him into our life and we trust him and he changes our life. I love what Joe McNabb said last week. I'll probably use it in every message I preach going forward until he tells me to shut up. He said it's much easier to be a worldly man than it is a godly man. You see, we have that sin. I want you to just think about it. What is that one sin in your life that is either keeping you from being saved or keeping you from being sold out? What is it that you cannot turn loose of? He knows. In fact, he probably spoke it into your mind just when I mentioned it. I didn't do that. He did. The last thing is that he knows your solution. He knows your solution. After today, you should know your solution. It's Jesus. For whatever's going on in your life, Jesus is the answer. Let's pray together.